Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi, Tabisolu Hoko and Tamit Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Concerns over escalating violence in Burundi, Uganda's president criticizes the UN Security Council, and children bear the brunt of the conflict in South Sudan. In economics, Egypt to attract 20% more visitors this year, and in sports news, top Egyptian football club Al-Akhli fires Spanish coach. But first up, the news with Onelin Sinti. At least 214 young women and girls recently rescued from Boko Haram in northeastern Nigeria are said to be pregnant. Nigeria's army freed almost 7,000 women from various Boko Haram camps last week. Boko Haram kidnaps young girls to force them to convert to Islam and presses them into marriages or keeps them as slaves. Nine of those rescued have been identified as belonging to the more than 200 girls who were kidnapped from a school in the village of Chibok in April 2014. Meanwhile, Boko Haram is said to be fracturing as shortages of weapons and fuel raise tensions between its foot soldiers and leaders. This according to women rescued from the Islamist jihadi fighters by Nigerian troops. The group abducted an estimated 2,000 women and girls last year as it sought to carve out an Islamic state in the northeast of Africa's biggest economy. The army has freed nearly 700 in the past week as it advanced on Boko Haram's last stronghold in the Vasambisa forest. The women say the militants began complaining to their captives about lacking guns and ammunition last month. Boko Haram seemed almost unstoppable and fast becoming a regional threat after it gained control of an area larger than Belgium last year and increased cross-border attacks on Chad, Cameroon and Niger. United States Secretary of State John Kerry says a third-term bid by Burundi's President Pierre Nkurunziza is unconstitutional. Kerry called for restraint in dealings with those opposed to the, to the decision by Nkurunziza to run for a third term. Yesterday, protests resumed in the capital Bunjumbura after a two-day pause. Two people were killed and at least six injured, bringing the death toll to nine since the protests began eight days ago. More than 60 people have been wounded since civil unrest began eight days ago. Kronziza, who has been in power since 2005, is due to run for a third term. Protesters say the bid is unconstitutional, but the former rebel leader supporters say he is eligible as he was not elected directly in his first term. Kerry had this to say. We are deeply concerned about President Nkurunzizi's decision, which flies directly in the face of the constitution of his country and the violence uh, that is expressing the concern of his own citizens about that choice should be listened to and avoided as we go forward in these days. It's my understanding an African Union delegation will go there soon to meet with him to try to underscore the importance of adhering to the constitution of the country. And it's our hope in the United States that uh, ultimately that is what will happen and that the people of Burundi will be given the choice that their constitution promises them. 
Amnesty International has called on authorities in Central African Republic to amend clauses in a proposed new constitution that could undermine the fight against impunity. This says a national reconciliation forum got underway in the capital, Bangui, yesterday. In an open letter to delegates attending the Bangui forum, Amnesty warns that the current draft constitution could allow any serving president immunity from prosecution for all charges except high treason. Amnesty International Deputy Regional Director for West and Central Africa, Steve Cockburn. The proposed constitution, it's something that's going to be discussed this week and uh, put forward in a referendum before the coming elections. And it's a revision of the previous constitution and it includes a few clauses that worries us somewhat. One is that it provides um, immunity from prosecution for a sitting president, any crime except high treason. It also provides that for former presidents as well, through the honorary membership of a constitutional court. It also has a clause which would allow the parliament or the, the government to introduce laws in the future to allow people to be immune from prosecution, for example, for war crimes. And finally, more than 500 Nepalese have been treated by South African doctors working in the capital, Kathmandu, after the 7.8 earthquake that shook the country 10 days ago. Deployed by the humanitarian relief organization Gift of the Givers, surgeons have performed 68 surgical procedures in four hospitals, while some 450 people in the outlying villages have benefited from primary health care outreaches. More from the coordinator of the medical team, Dr. Hasim Bor. In terms of the shift in in need for the patients that are coming in, we are still getting surgeries because of the terrain and the unique challenges we have in getting patients to hospitals, so they're still trickling in. As of yesterday, we had done 68 surgical operations under anesthesia, so the teams are doing very well in terms of orthopedic cases, majority of which are orthopedic cases, 95%, I would say. At the end of the day, in every operation in the process, a local doctor, whether it's an orthopedic surgeon, physiotherapist, is involved. So when we leave, it's a continuum of care, and I don't expect any problems there. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anele. In our top story, Uganda's president has blasted the lack of reform at the United Nations and blamed the Security Council decision that allowed military action in Libya for the chaos that has affected large parts of North Africa. In a keynote address to a meeting of the General Assembly on strengthening cooperation between the UN and regional and sub-regional organizations, President Yoweri Museveni took the opportunity to lecture members on the complementary required for the world to see tangible and positive results in efforts of peace and security. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The gloves came off as Uganda's head of state took issue with the structural deficiency that the lack of UN reform, particularly in the Security Council, has come to represent. The crucial decisions of international peace and security within the Security Council are mostly taken by the veto wielding members. This is a big mistake and has already caused a lot of harm to Africa, like in the case of Libya, where Africa's opinion was ignored. Hence, the present massive human hemorrhage in that area. If the Security Council members that took military military action in Libya had listened to the voice of Africa, the present chaos in Libya, Nigeria, Mali, the people who are dying in the Mediterranean Sea from the African shores trying to get to Europe could have been avoided. Museveni complained about the power afforded the permanent five members of the council, arguing that they represented just 1.9 billion people in a world of 7 billion, questioning why they had a monopoly on global responsibility. While we we abhor impunity, the, the United Nations approach that usually superficially and without proper contextualization, emphasizes justice in instances of conflict resolution at the expense of long-term peace is manifestly self-defeating. In this regard, the United Nations should not just blindly pursue the option of placing sanctions on individuals 
or referring them to the ICC without holding consultations with the regions affected, as this often undermines the very process of resolving the conflict in question. Making the case that reform would place the UN above national or group interests while calling for burden sharing, greater consultation with and respect for the processes of regional organizations. You are all aware of the long period it takes the United Nations to deploy in a crisis situation. The process from initial consultations to, in quotes, a zero draft resolution through several rounds of negotiations on actual drafts to a final resolution authorizing any form of action can take agonizingly long to come through. That is if one or more of the permanent members with veto powers does not use it to block the process. Some crisis, crisis situations are such that an immediate and robust response is required. This can best be done by countries in the region. It was a hard-hitting speech, showing the growing frustration at the lack of progress the reform agenda has seen despite years and years of negotiations. The UN will celebrate its 70th anniversary later this year, and a strong case will continue to be made to fundamentally reshape what Museveni called the old-fashioned structures that undercut its ability to respond quickly and effectively to crises, often due to the minority views of the powerful. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry has expressed deep concern about Kenya's threat to close the Dadaab refugee camp in northeastern Kenya following the deadly terrorist attack at the Garissa University College last month. Addressing the media at the end of his three-day state visit to the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, the U.S. Secretary of State said his government will provide training, security and intelligence support to prevent further terror attacks by the radical Somali militant group. Mwaiki Konyo reports from Nairobi. Addressing the media at the end of his three-day official visit to Kenya, the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry urged the Kenyan authorities to withdraw earlier decision to close the Dadaab refugee camp in northeastern Kenya since the repatriation of refugees without their consent would be a breach of their rights and international law. He says that Dadaab refugee camp should remain open as efforts are made for voluntary and orderly repatriation to their respective areas. The key is to accelerate efforts to have a plan in place for the ability of the people in not just Dadaab but in all of the refugee camps to be able to return home in an orderly and voluntary manner with dignity and with safety. That's his goal, that's our goal. And all of us need to work together in order to guarantee that people don't live in a refugee camp from the date of birth until the end of high school, but rather that they can go home. That's our obligation. Refugee camps are supposed to be temporary, not supposed to become permanent cities in another nation. And we all have an obligation to do better in order to provide better alternative to these young people. And I am confident that the camp at Dadaab will remain open while we work through how people will be able to go home by doing a better job of finishing our task in Somalia, in South Sudan. And that is the mission. On the question of terror threat from the Somali militant group, the Al-Shabaab, the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry said his government and other Western states would provide training, security, and intelligence support in order to prevent further terrorist attacks by the radical Somali terror group. Before meeting President Uhuru Kenyatta at State House Nairobi, opposition leader Raira Odinga and civil society groups, the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry laid a wreath at the site of the former U.S. Embassy in Nairobi. He said the Al-Qaeda terrorists who attacked the Nairobi U.S. Embassy in 1998 lost utterly in their purpose. They failed for the same reason that terrorists will always fail. Yes, they can reduce a building to rubble. And yes, they can even deprive innocent people of their lives. But they do not give anyone anything of what really makes life worthwhile. He said that the U.S. have no powers to revert the fact that many people lost their lives 
but with the power to fight back. I wish that we could somehow reverse time and bring all of the victims back, but we do not have that power. We do, however, have the power to fight back, not only with our military and law enforcement, but also through something that may even be more powerful and that may make a bigger difference in the end, and that is our unity and the character of our ideals. The only place for Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, Daesh, and others like them is in the past. The future does not belong to them. The future belongs to the children who are laughing and playing right now in the streets of Nairobi, of New York, of Kano, of Dar es Salaam, of Mogadishu, of Garissa. And according to President Uhuru Kenyatta spokesman, the two leaders discuss the security issues, the trade and U.S. investment in Kenya. They also discussed the planned visit by the U.S. President Barack Obama to Kenya later this year. From Nairobi, the U.S. Secretary of State will be traveling to Djibouti. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. The United Nations has deplored the escalating violence in Burundi, while the Security Council President says members are monitoring developments there very closely. This comes amid a lack of consensus in the council on what role it can play with Russia and China, arguing that the constitutional disagreements in Burundi are not a matter for council. Demonstrations have been escalating in the country, particularly the capital, Bujumbura, after President Pienguru Ziza indicated his intention to seek a third term in elections next month. Sean Bryce Peace reports. Almost 30,000 people have fled the country across the border to Rwanda as the international community calls for restraint from all sides. The Secretary General spokesperson, Stefan Dujeric. We continue to follow the ongoing developments in Burundi with great concern and deplore the violence and the loss of lives and injuries as well as the destruction of property that we've seen. Um, we reiterate our calls to all the parties to reject violence, exercise maximum restraint, and avoid using inflammatory language, as well as to take the necessary appeasement measures to create conditions for dialogue. And while the United States has expressed its regret that the term limit provision of the Arusha agreements has not been observed by the ruling party, Russia's ambassador told journalists late last week that it's not the business of the Security Council or the UN Charter to get involved in the constitutional matters of a sovereign state. UN diplomats have indicated that a draft press statement by the Council late last week was blocked by both Russia and China. In this regard, the UN mission on the ground, MINUB, has been encouraging all stakeholders to seize the opportunities of the dialogue that is organized by the Ministry of Interior with the support of the UN on May 5th and 6th. And we trust that stakeholders will see and build on this dialogue as an opportunity to diffuse tensions and seek common grounds for creating conditions for the holding of peaceful, inclusive and credible elections. With three reported deaths already, the council president for May, Lithuania's ambassador Raimondo Murmukaita, says they'll remain seized of the issue. We may not agree to have common statements, as was the case last time, but it doesn't mean we should uh, keep silent if uh, the situation deteriorates and simply because the council is responsible for international peace and security. And this particular situation can have very clear regional implications if the refugee flows continue. Certainly, we have to be uh, very well uh, apprised of the situation and we have to uh, discuss the situation of things evolve. And then if we succeed on uh, you know, working out a common position, so much the better. The AU's Peace and Security Council earlier welcomed a decision to refer the term limit issue to Burundi's constitutional court. The country's constitution and the Arusha Peace Accord limits the president to two terms, but Nkurunziza supporters argue he was not elected by voters to a first term, but directly by parliament, and is therefore eligible to stand again. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Children are bearing the brunt of the conflict in South Sudan, according to the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF. The agency says it is worried as children are dealing with strong psychosocial effects from having witnessed and experienced violence. South Sudan continues to endure a conflict which has pitted government forces against rebels. UN Radio Stephanie Kutrix reports. The crisis in South Sudan is one of the most serious that children are facing in the world. It was announced on Monday that the government of the war-torn country has ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Despite this positive move, UNICEF's Deputy Executive Director, Yoka Brandt, who was recently in South Sudan, says children's rights are being violated in many ways. We're very worried because, you know, first of all, the number of children affected, it's a large number. They're either you know, displaced or refugees or in other ways uh, impacted by the conflict. What you see is that children both witness and experience violence that even adults should not witness. And so that has also a strong psychosocial effect on the children. But we're also very worried about both their rights that are being violated through, for instance, being recruited into the uh, armed uh, groups and, you know, for some of the um, issues like their nutritional status and their access to services like health, you know, education, water and sanitation. So overall, uh, this is still one of the most uh, serious crises children are facing in the world. The conflict in South Sudan is also heavily impacting pregnant women who are often in remote, difficult-to-reach areas. Ms. Brandt says that through what is called a rapid response mechanism, UNICEF has been expanding its humanitarian activities to help these most vulnerable people. On Sunday, she visited one of the rapid response missions and shared her impressions. We were in Kwanyang uh, to uh, witness the rapid response uh, mission. What I was very impressed with is that it's actually a very effective mechanism to reach those people that are very difficult to reach, difficult to access because they're in you know, faraway areas where conflict is still ongoing. So together with our sister agency, World Food Programme, and with various partners, we are able to bring assistance to those people directly and at the same time also work with partners on the ground to make sure that these efforts are also sustainable. UNICEF says 700,000 people have so far benefited from assistance through the rapid response mechanism. The agency is requesting 165 million U.S. dollars to meet the humanitarian needs of children in South Sudan in 2015. Stephanie Kutrix, United Nations. It's been three weeks since Swaziland Chief Justice Michael Ramudibedi locked himself inside his house in a bid to evade arrest. Ramudibedi is accused of corruption, abuse of power and conflict of interest. It is alleged that Ramudibedi has made five new demands to the government. One of them is to be escorted to the Ngwenya Oshuk border gate en route to South Africa. Mutsibi Munareng has more. Swaziland's Chief Justice Michael Ramudibedi is reportedly still in hiding in his house to avoid arrest. His warrant of arrest was issued three weeks ago but Swazi police are unable to effect the arrest as he has locked himself in his house. Ramudibedi is accused of corruption and abuse of power. He is alleged to have made new demands to the Swazi government. Among his demands is to be escorted to Ngwenya Oshuk border gate to en route to South Africa. This will then stop the Swazi police from arresting him. He also demands to meet His Majesty King Mswati III. Swaziland government spokesperson Pesis Milane says, those demands will not be allowed. Similane says the chief justice must go to court and face the law. The constitution would not allow a situation whereby we as government negotiate with somebody that is, is a suspect uh, to certain crimes should be given a chance to go uh, to court and defend himself instead of us being involved in a situation like this. It's unconstitutional. 
Apparently, Ramudibedi says he wants to negotiate with the Swaziland government not to arrest him. Smelane says the Chief Justice cannot negotiate with government for his freedom, but he has to negotiate with the law. Otherwise, we'll be defeating the end of justice by trying to protect a suspect to a criminal, criminal offense. Either your resignation is accepted or not accepted. I can't say we will say yes or no. Meanwhile, Swaziland National Police spokesperson Kulani Mamba says the Swaziland Royal Police remains vigilant outside the Chief Justice's house. We've been trying to pursue other means of arresting him since we know that he has locked himself inside the house, refusing to come out, resisting the arrest. So what we're doing now, we're trying to venture into other options rather than to storm inside the house. We're trying to resolve the matter amicably since we are aware that inside the house he has got his family, his wife and two kids. We want to work the issue peacefully without straining the relationship that we have with Lesotho, the diplomatic relationship that we have. Meanwhile, the Swaziland government says the country's constitution does not include political settlement in criminal cases. Mutsibiwa Munaren, Bombela. The issues of race and reconciliation, economy, the National Development Plan and divisions within South African opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, dominated a live debate on a pay TV channel, GateNet, between the party's outgoing federal chairperson, Wilma James, and parliamentary leader, Musi Maimani. The two will square up in a battle for the leadership of the country's official opposition at an elective conference in Port Elizabeth this weekend. Tsepoe Kaneng monitored the TV debate and filed this report. Goedenavond en welkom bij die rechtstreekse uitzending van Inzig. Ek is Waldemar Pelser. Kandidaten Dr. Wilma James en Musi Maimane voor. Dr. James, I'm resuming with you. You mentioned... Musi Maimane en Wilma James appeared in a GateNet Actuality television program, Inzig, moderated by Rapport's editor, Waldemar Pelser. The two are frontrunners to replace Helen Sille as DA leaders. Maimane, who hails from Dobsonville, is regarded as a rising star within the DA. The outgoing DA's federal chairperson, Wilmot James, is a low-key politician and an astute academic. This is how my money responded to a question about Zilla's decision to resign from the party's leadership position. Helen Zilla is a, has been a phenomenal leader for our party. She's grown our party. It was a key time where she sat back and for her own reasons she took a decision to say, look, she'd not be available for leadership. Timing is always tough in any political environment. It could be too early or too late. It's irrelevant now. What's more important is the fact that the delegates of the DA will go to Congress on the 9th and 10th of, of May, elect a new leadership that will take this party forward. Many people, when Tony Leon stepped down, said, oh my goodness, is it time, is it not time? But the party has grown subsequent to that. And I- Wilmot James says he wanted Zile to stay a little bit longer as party leader. I argued uh, in private and within the party that Helen Zile should have stayed on and taken us through the local government elections. She is the party's biggest brand when it comes to good governance. She has governed the city of Cape Town extremely well, immensely competent, and the Western Cape government. And therefore, to the voters, she represents good governance on a local level. So my argument was for her to take us through the local government election uh, and then to step down after that. On the issue of race relations, the two agreed that for the DA to increase its black voter support is critical for the party to address socio-economic challenges facing the black majority. There's no doubt about the fact that many South Africans are left out of the economy and, and the majority of those are in fact black. It is still a critical factor. It's still a proxy for disadvantage. And the issue that we must focus on is the fact that we must address the education of young black South Africans. The fact of the matter is that a child who's in, in Vatterkloof gets a better education than a child who's in Mamelodi. So I think when it comes to economic redress, we must have a five-year plan that addresses, that measures how we're doing on that basis. But that, what we've got to be focused on is making sure that we focus on black advancement and making sure that young black South Africans can find equity into the economy. Dr. James? Race still matters. It's not credible to say it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, but it matters less, but it still matters. There are two things to worry about. The first is what you do in terms of the backlog 
when it comes to educational qualifications, and I believe we need corrective action in the sense that we must make sure that there's accelerated training and education for people who were excluded in the past and disadvantaged. But both Maimani and James differed sharply on whether the DA should endorse and adopt a national development plan in its current form. I think the NDP is actually an articulation of some of the DA principles and values on economic growth. They have very strong similarities. I don't support everything that's in the DA, on, on the NDP. Of course, there are elements of it that are flawed, that are wrong. For example, that focuses on how we do land reform. There are some challenges there. But I think overall, it articulates our stance point, our views on economic growth. Can you speak to the inconsistency, Dr. James? And presently, the DA is drifting strategically. It doesn't know where it is. It doesn't know where it's heading. It flirts with the NDP. It basically is becoming um, not an alt- we're not becoming an alternative to the ANC, but we're becoming an alternate ANC under the current leadership, and I intend to set that right. With regard to divisions that have rocked the party ahead of its weekend leadership elective conference, Maimani and James had this to say. We've sometimes had disagreements in the party, but we come out of it unanimous, as we will on the 10th of May, regardless of who the leader is. And I believe we can, I can take this party forward, regardless of the divisions that people seem to suggest that are there. I believe that this party will unite behind the new leader and take the issue forward and will communicate on our policies as we stand. Dr. James. Let me say that when I win on, on, on Sunday, I would expect Ms. Mamani to unite behind me. And if he wins, I will unite behind him. Meanwhile, two other candidates vying for the DS leadership position are Adrian Naidu and Morgan Oliphant. I'm Tsepo Ikaneng in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Onelen Sinti. At least 240 young women and girls of the estimated 7,000 recently rescued from Boko Haram in northeastern Nigeria are said to be pregnant. The death toll in Burundi's demonstrations against President Pierre Nkurunziza's bid to stand for a third term in office reaches nine. And migrants begin arriving in Italy after nearly 6,000 were pulled from boats crossing the Mediterranean Sea in one of the biggest rescue operations of the year. Channel Africa News. I'm Benjamin Mushatama. I'm an African from South Africa. I say no to xenophobia. Let's unite, Africa. Kenna Elizabeth, mo Africa wa go tswa province ya Limpopo, mo Africa borwa. Ke gana na le dihlaselo tsa badudi ba dinaga dishele e le go xenophobia. Let's unite, Africa. Jinalangu naitwa Michael Arere. Mimi ni Mwafrika kutoka Uganda. Siungi mkono chuki dhidi ya wageni. Afrika tuungane pamoja. Je m'appelle Jacques. Je suis un Africain de Côte d'Ivoire. Je dis non à la xénophobie. Restons unis, Africains. Ek is Janine, ek praat Afrikaans. Kom ons staan saam en sê nie vir xenophobia. Let's unite Africa. It's 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, every year, trophy hunters kill thousands of exotic wild animals representing hundreds of different species in foreign countries, primarily in Africa. They prefer to kill the most beautiful, the biggest and the rarest 
Wealthy trophy hunters pay big bucks to local cash-stripped governments for permits that grant them a choice of which animal to kill. The last of huntable species is usually very long the list of huntable species is usually very long and includes more more common species such as impala, black bears, common zebra, giraffes and baboons, but also endangered species such as elephants, leopards and white rhinos. In fact, the more the the more rare the animal, the more thrill to kill for the big game hunters and the higher the price for the permit. Now, our question to you today is, do you think trophy hunting should be banned in Africa? Give us your thoughts and your views on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa. One, Do you think trophy hunting should be banned in Africa? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. As foreign nationals who have been accommodated at refugee camps across the country are slowly being integrated back into their communities after last month's xenophobic attacks in South Africa, Amir Sheikh, chairperson of the Somali Association in South Africa, says although this is the case, the number of refugees in the Mayfair refugee camp in Johannesburg seems to be on the rise. Uh, unfortunately, in Mayfair, the number is not declining. It was meant to be an interim center where people from surroundings of the Mayfair places like the township like Alexandra will come and they will provide immediate assistance and then a quick exit strategy. But we have seen many numbers for fear of actually attacks coming to the camp seeking assistance. Uh, others are being repatriated from the center. So we are seeing a drastic increase in the numbers on a daily basis. The intention of the gift of the giver session the camp was at least to be an interim IDP camp, but they said in case if the people will still need the services, it will be extended. You just mentioned that you are seeing an increase uh, rather than a decline of the number of foreign nationals who are accommodated at the camps. Does this mean that uh, most of them are not yet comfortable with being reintegrated back into their communities? No, unfortunately, many people reintegrated back, others were repatriated from the center. Three weeks ago, when the center was actually started, it started with 18 people that were brought by the Department of Social Development under the Office of the Mayoral Committee on Social Development and Health. The number were 18, but after that we have seen the numbers increasing to 117. But it's not as actually the Brimble site was where at least they were closer to 500 to 700 at that time. The current Mayfair in the IDP camps is actually holding between highest 200 to actually 100 at the time given, considering the fact that it is only about four times that were erected. But people are willing and are going back, some are reintegrating, whereas others are assisted by the embassy, feeling forms and re Are organizations that are assisting in terms of humanitarian aid coping? Uh, The numbers have been actually fluctuating. There was no time at least there was uh, fixed numbers. So the numbers fluctuate between actually 100, less than 100 to 200 at a given time. The South Africans were very generous and a lot of people have come assisting actually this or giving actually provision. But the bulk of the works are done by a relief humanitarian organization by the name of Gift of the Givers that have staged the independence, the the camp itself. Earlier on when you spoke, you mentioned that you are attending a conference on informal trading. Are you able to tell us about this and what it speaks to? Yes, this is a workshop that was called by the Minister of Small Business Development. And the main aim is actually to bring the role players in the informal sectors in the countries all provinces are represented, and I'm representing the migrant business owners in the informal sector, in the formal sectors in the republic. It only started this morning, and it will end actually tomorrow after the presentations of commissions. 
and recommendations which will actually form the national policy framework on the informal sector. The attacks on migrants is not something that, that can be stopped with actually policy frameworks or a good actually policies. This is actually, there are a lot of issues that the government is actually giving a blind eye or is not giving much attention. There is actually large influx of migrants in the country and these have actually resulted in the fact that at least they occupy spaces where the majority are of South African origin and are in actually among the disadvantaged communities. So if the inequality actually in the township is not looked into and there is no regulations in terms of actually bylaws, education and informed, I think this thing is something that we will see. But in the meeting, this is the issue that I will discuss on actually the presentation that I will make. We can coexist with our brothers. They are not in hospital as they are portrayed. They are hospitable because they are giving us the space. But all we need is actually government to bridge the gap between the foreign migrants of African origin and actually the local community so that we can coexist and have the envisaged socially cohesive integrated society. And that was... Amir Sheikh, chairperson of the Somali Association in South Africa, speaking to Channel Africa's Komutso Mopulane. More than 500 Nepalese have been treated by South African doctors working in the capital, Kathmandu, after the 7.8 magnitude earthquake that shook the country 10 days ago. Deployed by the humanitarian relief organization Gift of the Givers, surgeons have performed 68 surgical procedures in four hospitals, while some 450 people in outlying villages have benefited from primary health care outreaches. More from the coordinator of the medical team, Dr. Kasim Borat. In terms of the shift in, in need for the patients that are coming, you remember surgical cases are usually the acute first seven-day phase of any disaster and um, we are still getting surgeries because of the terrain and the unique challenges we have in getting patients to hospital so they're still trickling in. As of yesterday we had done 68 surgical operations under anesthesia so the teams are doing very well in terms of uh, orthopedic cases majority of which are orthopedic cases 95 percent I would say wound debridement some digit amputation so I think there is now a focus on primary health care which uh, we have outreach teams going out into the communities and up to today we have touched the lives of 435 patients. That is now via the primary health care outreach project. Yes, so so what we've done uh, is we've developed a system with a local partner where we identify possible areas of need and these are semi-remote, not extremely remote villages, but semi-remote villages which take about an hour and a half to two to reach. We set up a facility, if you want to call that, in the middle of the open or underneath a tree, which is best for shade, and then we uh, call the villages, surrounding villages and the inhabitants to attend whatever medical cases, and that's basically chronic care. So a lot of dental uh, needs in the community. So whatever their needs are, we try to address. One of our recovery teams went out to quite a far away area earlier this week. They came back, reporting back that they are not so much needed there. One of the guys had a rather harsh quote. He said, if they don't walk, they're dead. So does it mean that there are not so many more new cases coming in injured people from the outlying areas? That's correct, and we're learning in this, in this disaster that that is the case. Basically what has happened is anyone injured in the earthquake, if the injuries were of any significance, they died. So what is left behind, unfortunately, in the spectrum of illness or injuries is the mild and people who are not injured. So there's no, there's no one more who has critical injuries or injuries that require urgent intervention in terms of life-saving. So it's really sad in that we probably have lost a lot of patients who were in the middle that required attention but because of access and because of the situation couldn't get to hospitals. What age groups are you handling? Are there many children? Is it more the elderly? What section of the population are you dealing with? That's a very interesting question and the answer is, is also very strange. We haven't put our head around this yet but we're not seeing a lot of pediatrics. So we're seeing adults, we're seeing mainly men, there are some women obviously, but we're not really seeing the pediatric population either in general medical primary health care or in surgical interventions and we, we trying to work out whether we're missing something in terms of a specific pediatric hospital but we've been to two of them so we're not really sure why this is the case. 
the gift of the giver team is deployed and working in four hospitals. How many hospitals in general, or is it impossible to count? Are they in Kathmandu? Is the um, city set up well, even if the foreign intervention wasn't here? I think it has two tiers of hospitals. So you've got uh, state-funded and you've got private. The issue with the state funding is they're usually teaching hospitals and obviously the departments have made a decision that no foreign medical teams will work in teaching hospitals. They're not numerous, but they're big hospitals and they offer a completely free service. So I think they have been inundated and they've carried the brunt of injuries. The private hospitals in this country seem to be unregulated. Every two or three kilometers you have a hospital. So it seems that they are numerous in number and I wouldn't be able to give you a count on that, but there's really a lot of hospitals here. And apart from the South Africans giving assistance now immediately after the earthquake, are there many other foreign teams of doctors that you've come across that are also helping out? Yes. Yesterday at the National Orthopedic Hospital, we bumped into the medical relief team from the United Arab Emirates. So it was interesting to interchange with them. Driving back, I saw the Korean medical relief team. So there's a lot of relief teams here and we have interacted with some of them, yes. You were talking about the state hospitals and the private ones. I believe that Gift of the Givers have some agreement with the private hospitals that when you do patients, the procedures will not be charged to the patients. Is that something that you find is really implemented in the system here? At the outset, that's something when we negotiated with the hospitals, we made it very clear that if we're providing the personnel and we're providing some of the equipment, they cannot be charged for that. The hospitals in return have said to us that, that they have agreed to that. However, they are using some of their own consumables during the treatment phase. And as a private institution, they have requested that they bill the patients, and we've picked that up. So we have addressed that in the way that gift of the givers will now pay for that, as opposed to the patient doing that. So the cost to the patients should still be zero. It's just that we would be covering all the costs. Do you think that the financial factor is something that kept many seriously injured people away from decent treatment before they heard about your services? Definitely. I mean, we've got to hospitals and that's why even though the surgical cases have been trickling down, we still have a backlog of patients that we need to get through. And that's purely the reason is that patients were sitting in a private hospital waiting for an operation because they couldn't afford it. The implants in terms of orthopedics, etc. are very expensive to the ordinary Nepali and I think that was the issue. So when we came to the private hospitals and we came up with the agreement or the model whereby we fund the implants, provide the personnel, the private hospitals were very happy to continue because now they could provide the service without incurring a loss. That was Dr. Kasim Borat, coordinator of the medical team deployed by Gift of the Givers in Nepal, speaking to Channel Africa's Janine Guthar in Kathmandu. It's 8.46 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabisola Huku. The South African Municipal Workers Union, SAMU, says about 5,000 workers have heeded a call to strike in Cape Town today. SAMU's Regional Secretary, Michael Kumalo, says they have decided to go on strike after the city failed to respond to their grievances. Kumalo says more workers will join the strike. We are hoping to continue again with the mobilization. Issues that we are complaining about, I mean, it ranges from issues of racism. We have got incidents like a, a, a TOC where all non-white workers were given an instruction to be relocated because they complained about racism. The High Court in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, is today expected to hear ComAir's challenge against the government's bailout of the South African Airways. ComAir, which is a franchise partner for British Airways and also operates the low-cost airline brand, Kulula.com launched the court challenge in February 2013, following government's then bailout of $414 million. Jack Stienkamp reports. ComAir CEO Eric Venter said the court case was launched because the airline regarded the bailouts and certain other government payments to SAA as not compliant with domestic aviation transport policy or the law. Venter says ComAir wants to ensure all domestic airlines face the same risk and requirements to operate on sound commercial principles. 
He says Comair did not want to stop all financial support for SAA or to shut or privatize the airline, but wanted any help to be in line with domestic transport policy to minimize the impact on other operators. Jacques Denkamp, SABC News, Johannesburg. Nigeria's Dungoti Cement will begin production in Tanzania in August. It's building a $500 million factory in southern Tanzania with an annual capacity of 3 million tons. However, Dungoti faces challenges in accessing coal and natural gas as sources of cheap power to run the factory. Egypt will attract about 20% more visitors this year compared with last year. About 2.15 million tourists have visited the country in the first quarter, up 6.9% from a year ago. Egypt's tourism revenue reached a peak at $12.5 billion a year in 2010. Kenya's Nation Media Group has appointed Joseph Muganda as its next chief executive, replacing Linus Kitai, who opted for early retirement. Nation Media, whose titles include one of the country's biggest papers, the Daily Nation also operates websites, radio and television stations in East Africa. Muganda, who will start the job in July, joins from East African breweries, where he served as managing director for Kenya. Indicators, the U.S. dollar, 1204 South African Rand, 964 Botswana Pula, 739 in Zambia, 65 British Pound, 89 Euro, Gold $1187, Platinum $1140 an ounce, Brand Crude $66, a 35 cents a barrel. That's an economic update here in Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille Africa, Africa, Wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. Weya Wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang, San Bonani. Africa, Mulishadi, Pulibanji. Africa, Ayomi, Kilon Shele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We are one people. A sports update up next with Tami Kluza. Thanks for joining us in your sports. Let's start with soccer, where top Egyptian football club Al-Akhli has fired Spanish coach Juan Jalo Garrido yesterday after failing to qualify for the CAF Champions League group stage. Akhli, winners of record 19th CAF titles, lost a penalty shootout against Moroccan Maghreb in Cairo on Saturday and were relegated to the second tier CAF Confederations Cup. Garrido, who is 46, took one of the most difficult coaching jobs in Africa last July at a club used to winning domestic and CAF competitions. His successes including winning the CAF Confederations Cup and the Egyptian Super Cup last year. But the CAF Champions League exit, coupled with a faltering National League campaign, triggered his downfall. Zambia entered camp yesterday to begin preparations for their May 10th friendly against Malawi at the Ngoloma Stadium in Lusaka. Day 1's highlight saw midfielder Felix Katongo joining camp following his late call-up for a friendly and possibly Zambia's 2015 Kosafa Cup outing. Katongo last featured for Zambia in a 2-1 loss to Cape Verde in the 2015 Africa Cup qualifiers last September. The midfielder is back home and training with his old club Green Buffaloes after a stint at Egyptian club Al-Itihad. He was one of the 12 players present for the first day training at the National Hero Stadium in Lusaka. Malawi and Zambia are using the friendly to prepare for their participation in the Kosafa Cup that will be held from May 17th until the 31st in South Africa. FIFA presidential candidate Prince Ali bin al-Hussein says that the governing body needs to be more open and more transparent. Current President Sablata is a strong favorite to win the fifth term as FIFA chief in the May 30th election but faces a challenge from Prince Ali Dutch Football Association Chief Michael van Prague and former Portugal football star Louis Fico. The first World Cup in Princess Ali's region will be held in Qatar in 2022, something that pleases the Jordanian. I'm sure. I'm sure. I think that, that we deserve a World Cup in, in, in our region. Um, uh, the important thing is to make sure that it's done, conducted in, in the correct way. Um, and hopefully it will be a 
be a great World Cup. In our rugby, South African Springbok coach Anneke Mea says that he is very impressed with the spirit showed by players during the first day of the Springbok training camp currently underway in Johannesburg. Mea says that for the World Cup squad, it's important not to change too much in terms of his personnel and consideration will be obviously be given to players that have played for the Springboks in the last three years. Um, I think, uh, you know, all these guys have performed over the years, so form is, is definitely important going into the World Cup, but you also have three years to see which guys can come through and what they can do under pressure. You know, although super rugby form is always, you know, it's always very, very important, but uh, this match rugby is it's totally different, especially the breakdown, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, and we usually face Northern Hemisphere referees. Mayor believes that they are on track with regards to their planning for the World Cup and that they have consulted a lot of coaches that have won the World Cups in their build-up to this year's tournament. Mayor says that they won't change much in the way in which the team plays and they just need to improve on a few minor things. You know, you have to stick with things that's worked for you. You can't just change everything. But I always believe, uh, you know, you can't be too predictable. You have to move on. The game is moving on every six months. So we try one or two new things. Uh, but the way of play, you know, this criticism for not scoring tries. We've last two years scored probably the most tries in, in, in the world. Uh, the All Blacks scored more, more last year, but we scored more the previous year. And they scored 12 against uh, the USA. So I truly believe we're on the right track scoring enough tries. The fans have been great. And finally, the USA athletic team won the IWAF World Relays title for the second time in the Bahamas. Both men and women athletes posted balanced performances to top the standings. And our correspondent Geshom Nyat reports. The USA team maintained their excellency in sprinting events. They won a total of 10 events on the program, collecting 63 points, a better score than their achievement in last year's relays competition. Jamaica, who had the services of world-acclaimed sprinter, Usain Bolt finished his second the same position as last year. Poland, who had three podium finishes, were in third place ahead of Australia. Kenya, the only African team which earned some recognition in the longer sprinting events, finished seventh overall, followed by Great Britain and Brazil. Two other countries on the continent, Namibia and Botswana, were not on the team standings as their performances was not adequate enough to score points. Geshom Nyati, Channel Africa Sports, London. That's the end of our sports and back to Lulu Kabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, concerns over escalating violence in Burundi, Uganda's president criticizes the UN Security Council, and children bear the brunt of the conflict in South Sudan. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Tlantla Matlangu, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of our folding news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is QB Smith, featuring Brian Timber with a track titled Man of Summer.
Good morning and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg.